because we live in very strange and uncertain times. And uh, for many of us, we don't know what's around the corner, of course. We're subject not only to COVID, but other incidentals in life. The other thing that is exciting and is important, of course, is the world events that are happening. Have a look at this uh, very helpful study on Barnabas. Not a subject that I heard before, and I sort of felt it's very nice to really focus sometimes on people that work in the background. And as I uncovered and unpacked this subject, I was amazed at the material and the colour that we can add to a very faithful servant in Christ. So Barnabas, what's our aim for our special effort? And there are a number of things that we want to achieve. First one is to be inspired by the generosity of the Barnabas spirit. And we'll see that in a multifaceted role, whether it's financially, emotionally, spiritually or ecclesially. He worked through all those various elements, was a very wonderful and a very faithful and a very consistent brother. We want to develop practical strategies and a strong spiritual fortitude to help work through the tough issues. All of us face difficulties in life, doesn't matter whether we're younger or older, we've got to work through those tough issues. And Barnabas was a person who did that with a very gentle spirit, a very amazing spirit, a very encapsulating spirit. And he helped individuals like Saul or through to John Mark uh, to mature and develop in the truth. And also particularly to develop a unifying spirit of cooperation as we strengthen the things that remain and patiently endure until the return of Christ. So again, there... Uh, elements that we want to draw out of the character of Barnabas that really have a flow on and a practical effect uh, to enthuse us in these last days as we await the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you would have seen, obviously, the subjects. We're going to work through this. Uh, our subject this evening is a generous member. He starts off at a point of giving financial support to the ecclesia, and uh, he grows through that to become a true friend as he enveloped Saul and brought him uh, back into the ecclesia. He was uh, a good man. He left with Paul on missionary work as well. He was very persistent and, of course, uh, a thoughtful brother as well. We'll see sort of at the end of Acts chapter 15 how he was uh, importantly involved in developing, supporting and blending together ecclesias that had sort of different approaches to the truth. So, you know, a, a really interesting set of studies. So, of course, tonight, uh, a generous member. This is the starting point. This is the introduction to Barnabas. He's a man, as we said, sort of is in the shadows, really, when we look at the book of Acts, and relatively unstudied. We might even consider Barnabas, as we gloss through the narrative, and we've done that, obviously, over many years, uh, that he's just, you know, part of the framework of, of what was happening in the book of Acts. And in many ways, he was overshadowed by some of those mega disciples, mega apostles, we might say, Peter and Paul, and there's other individuals. They seem to fade into the background, and sometimes, unfortunately, we gloss over them. But there's a wealth of information, as I said, as we start to blend that together, we can paint a very colourful picture of a man who's very well-rounded in many aspects of ecclesial life and was very supportive. And he had that beautiful fatherly spirit in which he gently influenced lives in a positive way, uh, individuals to achieve their greater potential. I think for all of us that's a bit of a challenge. As the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian Ecclesia, he said, you've got many teachers in Christ, but you haven't got many fathers. And we just love those you know, grandmas and grandpas in the ecclesia who have been consistent and faithful, who have beautiful characters and they inspire and help us by their consistency. So when we look at Barnabas, he's first introduced to us uh, in a very practical way. This new ecclesia is bursting forth. Of course, there's a number of memberships that have been added to the ecclesia and that, of course, brought problems as well. Through Saul, who at this particular time was, was quite... Um, quite opposed to the development of brothers and sisters and the truth as we know it, uh, he had impacted 
very seriously upon families and particularly upon wives who were left bereft of their husbands and support. And of course this meant that the early ecclesia was going to have a problem and an issue as far as supporting from a practical and financial viewpoint these widows that were, were struggling. And Barnabas was a person who came into that scene and provided, as we'll unpack a little bit later on tonight. And as I said, later on he assisted this man Saul, who turned the corner, did a U-turn, he became a brother in Christ, and many of the ecclesia in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas were very reticent to accept this man Saul because they, they'd heard of his violence and his anger and his aggressiveness. So when we think about that, the work of Barnabas is quite amazing because by extension, he influenced and assisted a man who wrote over two-thirds of the New Testament. So we can imagine if we were to uh, put a hypothetical in front of ourselves, if Saul didn't come into the truth, you know, what would be the construction of the New Testament? So backing back from that, of course, we look at Barnabas, sort of obscure in the shadows, but he had such a major influence in the writings of the Apostle Paul, as we know, our New Testament today. So in our Ecclesiastes, brothers and sisters, we might be doing small things in life now, but we never know what the final outcome and the influence will be of those events. We know that our brothers and sisters who were here in the Woodville Ecclesia many years ago who have fallen asleep will be the recipients as they observe the amazing impact of their lives in our lives and yours as well. So Barnabas not only helped Saul, um, he influenced and was uh, very supportive of a new ecclesia growing up in Antioch. And there was a little bit of difference of opinion between the Jerusalem ecclesia, which is very conservative, we might say, and the Antioch ecclesia, which was Gentile in origin and perhaps viewed as quite liberal. Well, Barnabas was the person who bridged that gap and who was sent to the Antioch ecclesia to give some advice back to Jerusalem and to nurture that ecclesia. So again, that was a particularly wonderful development. And he observed in that Gentile ecclesia in Antioch the grace of God. That was the thing that he particularly observed and was encouraged himself. Uh, as we said, he later on went to Tarsus to attach himself to the Apostle Paul, or really to bring Paul back. Paul had been up in Tarsus in, in obscurity for 10 years. And as um, Barnabas was helping grow the Ecclesia in Antioch, he realised he needed new resources, more resources. And who did he think of? Well, he thought of the man Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul. He travelled to Tarsus and brought Paul back so that Paul could assist in the development of that Ecclesia. So again... You know, a man who recognised that at those particular stages he couldn't do everything in the ecclesia, he needed other people to give support to and help, so he called upon the Apostle Paul. And that, of course, led to his engagement with Paul on mission work. And when we think about that, and I don't know if you think about that, but I thought, well, if I was alongside the Apostle Paul, trying to keep up with him, it would take a lot of energy, a lot of vigour, a lot of determination. Barnabas was the man who could do that. Right? We see Paul and we see him surging out into new worlds and, and spreading the gospel and that's perhaps all we focus on. What about the, the, the brethren that were alongside who kept pace with the energy and enthusiasm of, of, of Saul, the Apostle Paul? Barnabas was that sort of man. And he was a younger man. We, we often tend to just think of him, oh, perhaps he was in his 50s and 60s and he seems to stop in that age bracket for the whole narrative of the scripture. But he's actually quite a young man, around about the age of the Apostle Paul. Um, so... He had that drive, he had that fervour in which he could keep up with the Apostle Paul on that mission work. And then, of course, another layer, John Mark, who turned back from being with the Apostle Paul on that mission journey. Um, Paul couldn't deal with that because, well, he didn't think John Mark had the consistency and the backbone to, to keep up with him in foreign territories. But Barnabas, again, is with that fatherly spirit, embraced 
that individual, John Mark, and helped and supported him, gave him a second chance, as it were. Um, and we know that after Acts chapter 15, Barnabas went on his particular direction with John Mark. And again, through the influence of Barnabas, we have the gospel of Mark. All right, so John Mark was a young disciple that Barnabas took under his wings, and later on it was John Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark. And again, by extension, perhaps through the influence of Barnabas. So you know, quite a major part of our New Testament uh, has threads and connections through to the work of Barnabas. Well, what do we know about Barnabas? Well, he possibly studied under Gamaliel. Now, we do have to add a few sort of little projections, I suppose, in our study, because we don't want just to take the narrative. We do want to add some background. So it is possible that, that he studied under Gamaliel. I say that because he seemed to know who Saul was. They were roughly about the same age. He was a Levite as well, so he's very well versed in the law of Moses. Again, something that Saul would have been uh, embedded in as he grew up through uh, the education of Gamaliel. So when we <clears throat> have a look at the uh, chronology of Barnabas's life, it matches uh, almost to the age of the Apostle Paul. He would have been perhaps a few years older than Paul. So here we have uh, a timeline, and there's the birth of Christ. A few years after that would have been possibly the birth of Barnabas, and of course Paul as well. But we go through this whole area of discipleship, and we follow through uh, the life of the Apostle Paul, but particularly Barnabas, and uh, here we're sort of highlighting around about AD 37, he would be assisting Saul. Saul was baptised three years, three years in Arabia. He comes to Jerusalem. Everyone steps back. It's Barnabas who, tried, who attempts and who did that. He introduced him to the ecclesia. Uh, he was with Paul in the Antioch ecclesia uh, for about a year there, helping to service the brothers and sisters and growing them. He went with Paul on Paul's first journey around about AD 48, 49. He was with Paul, Jerusalem Conference, AD 51. And that's where that division happened and they separated. But that's not the end of the story because there's a couple of other references to Barnabas a little bit later on, which is really quite wonderful. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, when Paul was on his third journey, he commends Barnabas. He writes about Paul's ability to fund the gospel by himself. He said, look, under the law, I, I could ask for financial support from the ecclesia because I'm doing the work of God, but I don't. And Barnabas didn't, didn't, doesn't either. <laughs> so he makes a very lovely comment, even although they had a a sharp division here, he still commends the example of Barnabas as a man who funded substantial mission work here in, in the epistles of the Corinthians. And then finally there's a mention here in Colossians chapter 4, around about AD 61 that was written. Again, there's a mention of, of Barnabas there. So, you know, there's little add-ons to the story. It's not they just had a sharp division. Um, Paul is commending the work of Barnabas a little bit later on in his epistles. So one would think, obviously, still alive there. So just perhaps a few years older, maybe five or six years older than the Apostle Paul, we would suggest. Now, religious historians who lived around about that time, or Clement of Alexandria, who's about 100 years after the, the death of Christ, so it's only 100 years, not a long period of time, he, he writes from a historical viewpoint, he says, Barnabas knew Jesus, witnessed his miracles, and was a follower, follower of Christ. Eusebius who was another 150 years after that, included him as one of the 70 disciples sent out by Christ. So Barnabas, who was he? Well, some identify him with uh, a brother called Joseph Barsabas. You know, you might recollect reading about Joseph Barsabas. He was one who was selected to possibly be an apostle in the place of Judas. Right? And some have said, oh, well, that might have been Barnabas. In fact, I've got a note here <coughs> that Adam Clark says, some manuscripts translated as Barnabas, not Barsabas. 
However, uh, to append some further information that in Acts chapter 15 and verse 22, um, Joseph Barsabas is recorded there with Barnabas. So it would seem as though they were different uh, individuals. Uh, but let's paint a little picture here which could be a possibility. Was he the rich young ruler that um, raced up to the Lord Jesus Christ and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I want you to come back to Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. I'm not going to place a lot of emphasis on this, but it is interesting to look at some of the, the parallels and the connecting points between this young man and the energy, the enthusiasm, the dedication and the example of Barnabas as he gives financially to the ecclesia in the book of Acts. We're coming back to Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. Mark 10 verse 17. It says, And when he was gone forth in the way, there came one running. Okay, so I just want to stop there for a minute because we see here is a young person. Well, we would think he's young. <laughs> um, and he's running. So there's energy and there's enthusiasm. And when we think about Barnabas, and as we unpack that a little bit more in our studies, you'll see that he had the energy to keep up with a man called Saul or the Apostle Paul. So again, Barnabas, we, we know he's a vigorous young person. Uh, this, the record in Matthew, we won't go to, but Matthew 19, verse 16, the question is by this young man, what good thing must I do? So this young man who comes to Christ was like a task-orientated person. He thought he had to tick boxes or do things uh, to inherit the kingdom of God. And Christ pointed out to this young man in verse 21, that he needed to, to divest himself of, of something that was perhaps a little bit distracting to him. Uh, Christ pointed out he shouldn't be a task-orientated person, he needed to be a relational person. So verse 21 says, Jesus beholding, loved him, and said unto him, You lack one thing, go and sell what you have, give to the poor, and follow me. He recognises, of course, the thing that this young man had to do. And a little bit later on, we'll see how Barnabas, that was one of the foremost points of Barnabas, is became a very relational orientated person. He, well, in today's terminology, we'll say he's a people person. You know, there are some in our ecclesia that are really good with that. They seem to keep in tap with what's going on, you know, births of babies and who's sick in the ecclesia. And they know what's going on because they're relational. And this is sort of what Barnabas developed himself into. You'll notice in verse 19 that Christ prefaced this with, do the commandments. And again, this, so this was no ignorant man because he says in verse 20, I've done these from my youth. I, I, I'm a young person. I've, you know, through my teen years and onwards, I've, I've performed all these. So this is not an ignorant person. And again, Barnabas was a Levite. He knew the law. But the, the beautiful thing in verse 21 is it says, Jesus beholding him loved him. How did John Mark, who wrote this gospel, know that? How did that comment get embedded? Because that's not like a normal observational narrative comment. That's something from the heart. That's something that's revealed. Jesus loved this particular person. So John Mark, you might be aware, actually was the cousin to Barnabas. He, there was a family relationship to Barnabas. In fact, Barnabas was connected to a wealthy family. Mary was his aunt, who was the mother of John Mark, his cousin. So Colossians 4 verse 10 says, John Mark, the cousin to Barnabas. All right, so there it is in Colossians. That family linkage straight away. So... There, there was a wealthy family there. Mary, we know, had a house, possibly the upper room, where the disciples and the ecclesia regularly met. Um, Acts 12, verse 12 to 16 says, Peter went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark. So there's a family connection here. And when we sort of think about that verse, it's a verse that 
sort of must have been review from ah from a personal perspective and that's ah a fairly um unique comment about jesus loving this particular person i think it's only used well it's used by the apostle john of course as an expression of his love for christ and the privilege that he had in christ that jesus actually loved him so interesting to see that embedded there in verse twenty one well ah christ's advice to this young man is that he needed to give something to the poor and is that something that sort of this person thought about and later on resolved that and divested himself of his, his possessions and had that generosity of spirit took on board the constructive comments of Christ and became that sort of person because verse 22 says he had great possessions now what's interesting with that comment is the Greek word katima only three occurrences here Acts 2 verse 45 where they sold their possessions and Acts 5 verse 1 all of those events are connected with Barnabas so why did Christ tell this young person to sell his possessions was it because he was a Levite should be more focused on you know the religious aspect rather than be distracting by his possessions um, and you'll notice in verse 29 interestingly a little bit further down when Christ has a discussions a discussion with the disciples he puts this little phrase in verse 29 lands right which i'm going to draw a dot point across to acts because it says barnabas having lands sold them what's interesting about that verse is that's the only reference to like a possession because in verse 29 christ says there's no man that's left house or brethren or sister father mother wife children or land so he talks about houses and lands particularly property we might say property and that's the point in Acts 4, verse 37. It says, Barnabas having land. So, you know, I'm not going to be pedantic about this, but it's nice just to sort of colour in, or maybe that, that could have been Barnabas, perhaps. So did Barnabas take on board? Was this a young man? I don't know. There's some interesting connecting points. So as we say, uh, Matthew identifies him as a young man. Mark 10 adds, Jesus loved him. That's the same unique expression used by the Apostle John. How would Mark, who wrote the Gospel, know this? Barnabas was his cousin, maybe an added comment. Luke, of course, describes him as a ruler, uh, and obviously there was some prestigiousness in the position that this man had, possibly a Sanhedrin member, because the same Greek word is used of Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. So it could have been member of the Sanhedrin, which means, again, by extension, that he might have known Saul personally. To have a young man enthusiasm who Jesus loved, he was genuine, he was invited to follow Jesus, and was a ruler or possibly a Sanhedrin member. So, you know, it's always good to throw in a little bit of supposition at the, the front end of the special effort to get everyone's mind sort of working, thinking, well, yeah, maybe, possibly. But we do want to come back to Acts now to deal with the reality of Scripture and obviously Barnabas himself and the record of the narrative in which we're introduced to this wonderful expression of uh, support to the ecclesia. So we're coming back to Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. We know the background to the ecclesia had, had amazing environment. Acts 4 and verse 32 says they were one heart and one soul. So, you know, there's, there's a burst of energy, love and appreciation, not only for Christ, but for each other as well. And this is being felt in the ecclesia. And this context introduces us to Barnabas, who was a uniter. As we go through and look at all the studies, we'll see this unification process that Barnabas was involved in. All those instances we look at, he's, he's, he's bringing forward that unifying bond, whether that's in an individual or an ecclesia-like Antioch or gospel extension work, he's bringing people together. So 
here is, is, is a situation where they were all of one heart and soul, but there was, a, there was an issue in the Ecclesiastes that some families had no income, no financial support. So end of verse 32 says, um, neither said any of them that ought of the things that he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. So this was a, an amazing expansion of the Ecclesia, 3,000 members to 5,000 members, absolutely massive. And the apostles were feeling the weight of this responsibility. A little bit later on, they appointed stewards to, to look after the practical concerns for the widows particularly. So there were some issues that had to be resolved here, uh, both socially and economically. So we notice in verse 34 that there were many, uh, it says that there were many who were generous, and having lands or houses, sold them and brought that to the apostles for distribution. Uh, in the Greek, there's a continuing tense there. I think the diaglot says, constantly selling and bringing. So it wasn't just like a one-off gesture uh, that we read about with Ananias and Sapphira, a little bit in chapter 5 here. It's like a constant process. The ecclesia was a very giving ecclesia. So here's the atmosphere. They were all filled. They had all things in common. Great grace was on them all, so very, very inclusive. And this is the context, this is the important thing, this is the context which introduces us to Barnabas because he is always mentioned encouraging, nurturing, appreciating fellowship. So we live in a very self-centred world, don't we, where everything's about us, supposedly. I mean, if we're in the world, that's what it's all about. It's about us, even in relationship. If it doesn't work with us, well, go start a new relationship. You've got a family, it doesn't matter. Someone will look after that. Uh, and even as far as material possessions are concerned or everything, it's all about us and me and my needs. So this is quite a challenge for us to embrace the Barnabas spirit of thinking about others and trying to nurture and grow people through to their ultimate potential. This is what Barnabas is doing. So you notice in verse 32 there's that word uh, possessed. In verse 34 again, uh, possessors of lands. And chapter 5 verse 1, sold a possession. So this is the connecting point, the sort of the bookends in which we're embedded with an introduction to Barnabas. And the reason for that is because Barnabas was a sincere, honest, transparent and generous person. Really, that's the bookend of this whole narrative. The Ecclesia had issues, people were helping to fund it, but right in the middle of that was Barnabas, who was a contrast to Ananias and Sapphira, was generous and sincere and open-hearted. He wasn't doing it for any prestigiousness. He was doing it because people had a need. So that's the contrast, and that's why we're introduced in chapter 5, verse 1, to Ananias and Sapphira. So this little phrase in verse 32, they had all things in common, is, well, that's the Greek word koinos, where we get our word koinonia, fellowship. They had fellowship. And really, that's a lovely definition of what fellowship is all about, isn't it? It's not the statement of faith or the constitution or you know, the, the doctrines to be rejected. It wasn't a legalistic booklet that they were adhering to. It was the reality, reality, the practical reality of what fellowship was all about. And the ecclesia was enjoying that. And for Barnabas, that was his definition of fellowship. It was outreaching to individuals or to ecclesias to share and help and support. So for Barnabas, who was a Levite embedded in the law of Moses, Fellowship wasn't just a theory, it was a practical working of the Spirit of Christ in his particular life. And so we have added into the Ecclesia now this individual called, well his name is Joseph, verse 36. We know him as Barnabas. His actual name was Joseph, which means, well, adding, doesn't it? Joseph means adding into. So here's this man, 
Joseph, who's adding in to the ecclesial context. He's not keeping back, which is the comment of Ananias and Sapphira. There's a particular narrative, narrative turn there. They kept back. Well, here's Joseph, who kept adding. All right, so there's a contrast there as well. There's no means adding or increasing. So where this, this thread of, we might even say apathy or disunity or self-centeredness that was being introduced into the ecclesia, Barnabas stands as a contrast to that. So I think for ourselves, brothers and sisters, we need to um, have a think of where we, we sit with all of this. Um, ecclesial fellowship. Uh, how do we view that? I, I know as the Christadelphian Brotherhood, we place a lot of emphasis on our constitution, our statement of faith, rightly so, no problem with that. But we've got to extend that in a practical way as well. So here's what Paul says. It doesn't matter what you have. What matters is how much you're willing to give from what you have, Second Corinthians chapter 8. It's talking about Corinthian ecclesia, supporting the uh, financial needs of the Jerusalem ecclesia. I've got a photo here of a couple of um, families, of brothers and sisters, Christadelphian brothers and sisters, who've gone across to Kenya um, to devote a portion of their life to helping grow young ones, um, educate them in the scriptures, and if we've seen the reports from Kenya, quite amazing the, the amount of baptisms they have. Now, that's quite a challenge, and that's astounding to me, but that's what fellowship really is all about, isn't it? It's wanting to, to share the gospel, and there's people that are big enough who are risk-takers who will take a young family like this and go to Kenya to fellowship with brothers and sisters of like faith. Quite amazing, really, quite challenging. So Barnabas... The first point we stop off, we're introduced, he's challenging us to really examine who we are, where we're going, are we genuine, do we have integrity, do we have that Barnabas spirit. So it's not just how much we give, it's how much we hold back. And again, it's particularly tough when we're sort of through our teens, we start work, maybe young marriage, we've got to invest, we've got to save, there's this whole financial focus, and it is tough. We've got kids going to heritage, we've got to fund all that. It is true, it is you know, very difficult. But in my life, I've found that the generous people are often the people who don't have a lot. Um, they're people that, that aren't particularly embellished with all the things of this world, but they want to help and they want to do what they can do. And I know Beth said a lovely story the other day. She talked, we've got a sister in our ecclesia who um, uh, gave Beth a little cake in a tuna tin. And, um, you know, it wasn't in some sort of fancy wrapping or whatever, it was in some little tuna tin. And um, she gave that to Beth to give to another sister who Beth was going to see. And I thought that was just a, a sort of really old-fashioned, wonderful little incidental to how people that don't often have a lot in life are the ones that perhaps are sometimes more um, generous. And there, of course, Paul encourages us uh, to become cheerful givers. So again, this is another layer. Not only do we give, uh, but we have to be cheerful givers. We, want, we actually want to do that, not through compulsion or because in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, everybody else is doing it, so we, we feel, oh, well, I've got to do it. I mean, that's not the, the spirit at all. So his name's Joseph, but look what happens in verse 36. His name actually gets changed. The apostles nicknamed him the son of encouragement or son of consolation. It's a bit of a twist to his name because we don't call him Joseph. We call him Barnabas, and that was not his real name. It was the nickname that the apostles gave to him to describe the spirit of who he was. And we know, well, that's, that happens right through Scripture, doesn't it? Uh, Jesus Christ renamed Cephas, said, your, your name will be Peter, Rock. Uh, James and John, he called them the sons of Boanerges, the sons of thunder, because they were very passionate. So he named them, them that. And so Barnabas was renamed in a very friendly way by the apostles because of a particular characteristic he had. So Barnabas means 
uh, son of Nabas, which Nabas is prophecy or interpretation. So, so, so the word Barnabas actually means a son of prophecy. It means to like bubble over, to be enthusiastic for the word of God. Right? So it's not just a prophet who could forth tell. This man loved the Bible, he loved the word of God, and he just bubbled over with it. A little bit later on, we learn he was an actual prophet. Uh, that's mentioned when he went up to the ecclesia there in Antioch. He was, he's described as a prophet. Chapter 11, verse 24, it says he's full of the Holy Spirit. So not only did he have solid grounding in the law of Moses as a Levite, he also bubbled over the things of the truth. So he wasn't just a sort of a formal ritual-based person. He had an enthusiasm for the things of God. Now added to that, in brackets, is interpreted the son of consolation. And that is the defining element of Barnabas. It's the Greek word paraklesis, and it means to come alongside someone. Okay, we get our word uh, paralegal or paramedic, people that come alongside to help and to support. That's Barnabas. That's the core element of the character of Barnabas. So Joseph Barnabas, actual name was Joseph, surnamed by the apostles. It wasn't his actual name. They saw that spirit of encouragement. They wanted to rename him. Um, so it involved a further translation into the son of consolation. And there we've got the paraclesis. Um, so he's not only publicly enthusiastic, he had the capacity to privately encourage individuals. That's the thing we'll see. He wasn't up on the platform. He was down amongst the brothers and sisters looking out for individuals. Amazing work that he did. And so here we see that Greek word again used a bit later on. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. He exhorted them. That's his name right there. That's Paraclesis. That's the, that's the, the, the comforter. That's who he was. He exhorted them uh, with purpose of heart. And here's his name, Joseph, I guess. Uh, much people was added to the Lord. So interesting, you know, just this, this whole name of, of Joseph Barnabas. And of course, Jesus used that particular phrase. We've got that phrase, the son of consolation, Paracletus. He used that in John 15, 26. This is the phrase. He says, when the comforter is come, who I will send from the Father, which is the spirit of the truth, he will testify of me. So again, the angel, the work of the Holy Spirit as well, that gave comfort and encouragement to the apostles as they navigated a very difficult pathway in life. That, of course, was also uh, who, who Barnabas was. He became that comforting element. So he was, he was outstanding as far as that was uh, concerned. So again, for ourselves, uh, here's where that, that word is used. This is the word paraclesis, and this is the name... Uh, the, the consoler or consultation or comforted. If there be any consolation, there it is. That's that. There's Barnabas's character in Christ. Any comfort or love, fellowship of the Spirit, any bowels and mercies. There's that same Greek word, parakleo. And this one's this quote is very interesting because it's a contrast to who Barnabas was. Woe to them that are rich. You've received your parakletus. So your comfort, your encouragement. So there's, there's two quotations there. Barnabas possibly... At one stage was over here with his wealth and wondering what to do with it, and Christ redirected him, possibly. Uh, and then, of course, we see very much that spirit of generosity, comfort, encouragement, as he came alongside ecclesiastes and individuals uh, to help or to support. So, Joseph uh, Barnabas, which we've got, the increaser of encouragement or comfort. That's there in verse 36. That's, in, that's the narrative there. Now, here's the question for us. If brothers and sisters were to nickname you, what do you think that name would be? What's the one thing you do well in the truth? So, if brothers and sisters were sort of nickname you instead of calling you for, 
by your normal name, but something that was a, a dominant characteristic attribute in your life, what would that nickname be? Brother Faithful? Sister Integrity? Brother Consistent? Or Brother Mediocre? Or Sister Never Here? <laughs> you know, they're sort of the nicknames, and we do this, don't we? We characterise people, we think, oh yeah, well, they're never here, or, you know, or they're always sad-faced, or, or they're all, always encouraging and helpful. So we need to become Barnabases, and we need to sort of think about our own lives. Is it positive? Is it helpful? Are we tapping into the needs of individuals in our ecclesia? So this is where that encouragement, and this is really going through our topics, we'll see this in every incident that Barnabas is involved in. So here he is encouraging the new ecclesia in acts of generosity. There it is there. Encouraging a new brother despite his baggage. So here's Saul comes out of the desert of Arabia from Damascus. He's downhearted. He's coming into an environment that might be quite hostile. And Barnabas embraces him and introduces him to the apostles. Um, encouraging a new direction of growth in the ecclesia. There in Acts chapter 11, he's sent up to Antioch. There's a, there's a, there's a burst of enthusiasm from a Gentile ecclesia up there. They're coming into the truth. Jerusalem ecclesia sends Barnabas up there to help develop and encourage that ecclesia. Acts chapter 13 and 14, encouraging new converts through mission work. Again, he goes with the Apostle Paul and he's bringing on board, encouraging people with the good news of the gospel. And then in Acts 15, at the end of Acts 15, he's encouraging a young brother who initially defaulted, gave him a second go. Didn't work out too well the first time, but Barnabas didn't discard him. He actually helped him through that situation to become, well, the writer of the gospel of Mark. So amazing addition uh, to that particular individual's lives. A uh, beautiful quote, I think, which characterises Barnabas. An anxious heart weighs a man down, but a kind word cheers him up. And that's where I see Barnabas, whether he's interacting with this new ecclesia, with Saul, with John Mark, the Jerusalem conference. He just seems to be this man that effervesces positivity and encouragement. You know, last days, brothers and sisters, Christ around the corner, hang on for a little bit longer. Just seems to be that sort of person. Well, what else do we know about Barnabas? Well, it goes on and it says that he was a Levite. Verse 36, we gloss over this, don't we? He was a Levite. Now, this is going to be important a bit later on when there's a conversation about the law of Moses and how relevant it was. So, again, we just gloss over that thing, okay, he's a Levite. But, you know, a little bit later on, that was really important because the Jerusalem Ecclesia wanted someone grounded in the law of Moses and knew what it was all about to make a a balanced decision. Well, he was a Levite, and how come he had lots of wealth? Because you'd be thinking, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Levites were supposed to be the teacher of Israel. That was their job. Their job wasn't, you know, to accumulate vast assets. So how did that happen? Well, and that's true enough. The Levites had a focus on teaching. But they did have assets, and they did have land. So we might have the concept, well, the Levites never owned anything. Um, but they actually did. Joshua 21 shows the Levites had 48 cities throughout the land, six cities of refuge. And there were some Levites who wanted to operate in the temple while they would devote their land um, to the service of God. So they'd rent it or sell it, um, and whatever money was coming in from that, they could devote that to the temple service. So there's a couple of quotations that talk about Levites and the assets that they could have. Uh, Deuteronomy 18 and verse 8 says, they'll receive portions, so this is from the tithing process, besides that which comes from the sale of their father's inheritance. Okay, so if they devoted themselves to the service of the temple, we don't want to work uh, this land, it is our family inheritance, we'll rent it out, money can go to the temple, um, or, or I guess to themselves to support their teaching work. 
So they were able to have investments. Again, 1 Kings 2.26, the king says to Abiathar the priest, get you to Anathoth to your own fields for you're worthy of death. So again, um, Abiathar was the high priest and he had possessions there in Anathoth, 1 Kings 2.26. Jeremiah was a priest. Jeremiah 32 verse 7, he brought land in Anathoth. Okay, so there are some references that show that the Levites obviously could have possessions. And in this particular case, uh, Barnabas was a Levite and he had extensive assets. It goes on to talk about that in the country of Cyprus. So verse um, 37 says he sold the land and he gave it to the apostles. So it's possible that he had a sizable asset somehow in Cyprus and Cyprus was renowned for its orchards, its farming, um, probably a lot better than the land of Israel itself. So he sold all that and he gave or part, at least part of it because we know he supported, he must have had other investments because he supported his mission work uh, through that. But he gave a substantial part of that to the apostles. And in the context, what it was is Barnabas is not trying to prove himself to anyone around him. He's doing this from a genuine, heartfelt desire. So you'll notice that progression, verse 37. Having land sold and, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet, but, 5 verse 1. So there's a contrast. There's a dark cloud coming to the narrative and it's a different spirit that Ananias and Sapphira had. I mean, they laid it at the feet of the apostles. It says that at the end of verse 2. But their heart, and this is the key, key point, I've got this coloured in verse 3 and 4, the word heart. All right. Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? And again in verse 4, did you conceive this thing in your heart? So that's the, the crux of the matter. They pretended they were generous. It's a contrast to the genuineness of Barnabas. He wasn't pretending at all. So, for ourselves, are we pretenders? Um, do we undermine what other people are doing in the truth? Do we say, oh, you know, what, what I think they're doing or... That was a bit annoying that they did that. I mean, we can, we can have that spirit as well. So the contrast between Ananias and Sapphira and Barnabas is quite substantial. It's showing the fullness of his commitment. It wasn't just about the money. It was about the heart. It was with his full heart. He bought generously to the apostles. And, of course, that's the encouragement to us as well. As we think about our own lives, what's the motivating point of why we're doing something? I think that's the critical thing. And sometimes we have fundraising events that, well, you know, on the eastern seaboard, our ecclesias have suffered flooding. Now, are we donating because everybody else is doing it? Or is this something we feel we should do or we want to do? So here's Hebrews 6 verse 10. God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labour of love which you've showed toward his name and you've ministered to the saints and you minister. Um, there's the key word, is God. We're not doing it to impress anyone else. But we just because we want to, we feel that they are brothers and sisters and we can help and support them in some small way. There's an interesting contrast because it says um, in verse 37, Barnabas sold some land. And if you remember, there's a contrast with a man who had a very dark heart, and Judas, who was actually acquiring land with the money that people were supposedly devoting to the truth. He had his hand in the bag. So there's, there's a contrast between um, Judas and Barnabas. He was numbered among us, but Barnabas didn't have necessarily high credentials, but he laid it at the apostles' feet. He was part of the ministry of Christ, and he was also part of the ministry and was surnamed, well known by the apostles. I mean, it's a ecclesia of 5,000 people. They knew Barnabas' character. Uh, this man purchased a field. Well, he was known as the son of encouragement, and he sold it. He used the rewards of iniquity. He used his own assets. He gave to the poor, 
a judas stole from the poor uh, and of course his death was a particularly sad event but here as far as barnabas was concerned he didn't seek public prominence something done you know reasonably quietly although it's here in the nan uh, narrative so there's uh, a, an interesting contrast between judas and barnabas so what's this all mean to us well barnabas knows uh, that he is there to support the ecclesia and that's the introduction for us of where Barnabas was at, financial support. And he gave of his best, really. So for ourselves, we need to do that. Here's some uh, challenges. The Bible contains many references to helping the oppressed. How practical are we in financial support? Didn't God decree that 10% was a minimum? See, this is a starting point for all of us. You know, when we're first baptised, we come to the truth, you know, we aren't up here as great expositors of the word. We have to grow and we develop. Where do we start? And sometimes as a young person, we think, what can I do in the ecclesia? Well, here's Barnabas' starting point, a starting point for all of us, young ones, young marrieds. We can just give financially to the truth. It's a wonderful thing. It's a helpful thing. What should be our definition of giving too little? How much do we give? Is it just the leftovers? Should we actually budget to predetermine our level of support? So this is an interesting thing. You know, with young marriage, we normally go through a, a, a session with them. We say, you know, well, you need to financially budget. And we, well, not that we go the wrong way, but most of us go the wrong way. We sort of think, well, I need the, the house mortgage, the food, the insurance, you know, the car payment, eh, eh, that, 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 and this for the collection. <laughs> what we should be doing is turning that around the other way and saying, well, this is what I'll give for the collection, and then we work everything else around that. So, you know, that's, that's the way we probably should think about it. Here, of course, in Galatians 6, um, Philippians 4, there's uh, comments about how we can practically support each other. And again, whether that's the Old Testament, Proverbs 19, whoever is generous to the, poor, to the poor lends to Yahweh. God acknowledges that. Right through to Leviticus. Remember, uh, Boaz and Ruth. Ruth was able to glean in the corners because, well, Boaz wasn't pushing his, his harvesting right to the edge. He's a generous-hearted man. And again, there in John John, in a very practical way, points out that we need to think about our brothers and sisters and we can help them in, in some little small way. So, leftovers. Now, when I was finance brother, I was amazed. Sometimes we would take collections and, um, you know, I'd find five cent coins in there. Now, I know we might have had some widows that put in little widows' might, and that's fair enough. But there seemed to be an abundance of five cent coins in there. And often it was on a Wednesday night, and I'd be thinking, you know what? People are coming along for the Wednesday night class. They've got no idea. The collection comes around. They reach in their pocket. Oh, yeah, there's a bit there. Throw it in. That's leftovers, brothers and sisters. <laughs> That's leftovers. truly is. Probably works a little bit better now we've all gone to EFT because we can sort of designate consistently what we're giving. So it's working, you know, quite well. But on a spiritual plane, I wonder if sometimes in our lives, not just financially, but in time aspects, perhaps, we're giving the leftovers to God. Like, you know, when we come home, is it like at the end of the day we think, oh, I better, I better pray to the Father. Like it's leftovers. And this is the thing Barnabas was not. It wasn't leftovers for him. shouldn't be leftovers for us either. Little poem. Leftovers are such humble things, we wouldn't serve them to a guest. And yet we seem to serve them to our Lord who deserves the very best. We give to him our leftover time, stray minutes, well, here and there. We give to him our leftover cash, a few coins we can easily spare. We give our energetic youthfulness to the world, to education, to career, to finding a wife. Then sadly for the next year years, do we give God just the remainder, the leftovers of our life? 
So I think that's the challenge of Barnabas. Now, we've learned tonight from the narrative he's a generous man, he has integrity, he has honesty, sincerity. We need to wind back on ourselves and think, am I just giving leftovers to God? Or am I devoted? Is God my first priority in many aspects of my life? So what are the things that we've learnt tonight? When there is disparity within your ecclesia, do we seek out uh, practical solutions to help unify brothers and sisters? This is what we'll find uh, in the life of Barnabas. How do we view fellowship as a set of essential doctrines only or a practical lifestyle seen in sacrifice and the support of others? That's Barnabas. He was nicknamed the son of encouragement. What's your nickname? He had the ability to come alongside people, parakletos, in need and provide exhortation and reassurance. Is that something that you could do? It doesn't have to be a long and lengthy conversation. Our doormen sometimes do it so well, they've just got a smile and a great handshake. <laughs> Are there areas of financial or practical support that you could assist with brothers and sisters' meals, loans, ecclesial activities and events? Are we just giving God the leftovers? They're the challenges, I guess, as we open up Barnabas' character, as we start to explore the narrative and come to, to love the man, they're the challenges that he leaves us. Are we brothers and sisters that are compassionate, that come along and comfort and provide encouragement? So that's the study for tonight. Let's look forward then in the, in the days ahead to finding more about Barnabas and challenging ourselves.